Amen, amen. For the king is here. Good. I have um, our scripture this morning. Kathy and Bill are not able to be with us, but we're going to be on page 638, Psalms 34. 
Psalms 34, page 638. And this is a, a psalm where uh, David is praising the Lord. But I want you to know kind of what a little bit what's going on here. He's actually uh, held, or held up in a cave. He's a, a fugitive. And uh, King Saul is chasing after him. And that's where he is when he writes this psalm. And I think that's sometimes good for us to remember that where David was and what was going on. So his life was not just peaches and cream right here by, by any means, but out of the jealousy of King Saul, he was after David to kill him. But this is what King David writes. Well, he's not king yet. Let me, let me correct that because he's not king yet, but will be king. And um, so it says, he writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. Now, this word bless, I want you to understand. There's several different words in our Bible for that we use the word bless. But this particular word means to bow down, to kneel before. So David is writing, he says, I will bow down, kneel before the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. So he's saying, I love this. He says, uh, the praise shall be in my mouth. In other words, he's saying, I'm not going to just hold these things in my heart, but I'm going to proclaim the praises of the Lord. And then he says, my soul shall boast in the Lord. He recognizes that nothing is because of his doing, that all is because of the faithfulness of the Lord. Then he writes, he says, the humble shall hear of it and be glad. The humble, those that are poor in spirit, those that know their need is in the Lord. And he says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. This place of magnifying the Lord is a place of kind of like a magnifying glass. You know, if you take a magnifying glass, it doesn't change the object that you're looking at, but it changes your perspective. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying magnify, enlarge your understanding. Enlarge the the Lord's, uh, his perception of who the Lord is. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to me and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. The poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed, now this word is happy. Happy is the man who trusts in him. Amen. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this wonderful way to start our morning, Father. 
as we come to you, Father, bowed before you, kneeled before you, the great I am. Father, we pray that you would use these words to draw us into this place of praise that only you and you alone deserve, Lord Jesus, today. Lord, help to magnify our understanding today that we would see you in a new way, that you would be enlarged in our understanding, that we would know you as Savior, as our deliverer, as our healer. We would see you as the one who has love abounding, that you are joy, that you are good, that you are long-suffering, that you are merciful and grace is abounding from you. Lord, we know that we find ourselves in trials and tribulations and oppressions and needs, but Father, we love that in this place you hear the cries of our heart. And as we come before you and bow before the Most High, Father, you answer our needs. We do desire today to come and to taste and to see your goodness. Lord, we pray that through every song, through every word that is spoken, you would alone would be glorified. And it's in the powerful name of your Son we come before you. In Jesus' name, amen. said if we would pray and we would seek and humbly lay our lives down at your feet that you would bring us to a place where earth and heaven for your glory make us holy so we've come to kneel before your throne Faith and confidence in you alone. You would heal our land and overwhelm us with your for your glory. Make us holy. Come like a sound of roar and thunder. Cover the earth with signs and wonders. Bring it awakening. Bring it away. And consume us with your power Jesus we need you in this hour Bring an awakening Bring an awakening We need an awakening Here we go. 
Good morning. When the Lord shows us something, it's, it's as if, how could we have seen it any other way before? And I'm so grateful for the treasure that we have this morning because the Lord's given me some understanding over something that I can't see any other way. And I'm so grateful to share it with you. So if you would turn with me, we'll be in Philippians chapter 3 in the church's Bible on page 1351. Philippians chapter 3 on page 1351. So I've been keeping y'all up to date on Abigail's basketball saga. Um, Abigail's team has now played three games, and the first two games they won by a lot by a wide margin. I think the first one was 50 to 2. Uh, the second was 30 to 10. A pretty good, pretty good number. Um, and I think they benefited from a lot of things, from good coaching, from talented players, but also because they have some taller girls on their team that can help with rebounds and shooting and things like that. Uh, so each game, they have been able to play from a comfortable lead. They have been able to just continue to dominate uh, comfortably. And yesterday, uh, they faced their toughest opponent, uh, a team that um, was well coached and had one really talented player who was much taller than any on Abigail's team. Um, they played really hard during this game, but at the start of the fourth quarter, the score was in favor of their opponents, 16 to 10. So Abigail's team had to dig really deep, they had to work hard, they took some timeouts, they refocused, they, they continued to be coached, uh, but it was very challenging for them. But somehow, they ended up coming back and winning 22 to 16. 12 unanswered points by a group of, I don't know, eight and nine year old girls. It was pretty remarkable. I was so proud of them for having 
worked hard, overcome adversity, and not giving up. And side note, Abigail got the ball twice, so really proud moment for us. But what I saw yesterday was consistent with what Paul has been telling us. We cannot assume a level of perfection and rest on our past achievements. There is no point that we spiritually arrive and we get to maintain our lead comfortably. And we have to decide to grab a hold of the spiritual opportunities that the Lord has in store for us. Paul uses athletic words in this letter to the Philippians, and I could just imagine him shouting from the spiritual sidelines, press on, forget the things which are behind, reach forward towards the things which are ahead, are ahead. press toward the goal, think of the prize of the upward call. So today's message is a warning to those of us who are spiritually mature, not to be entitled. So let's read together in Philippians chapter 3. We will read verses 17 through 21. Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have for us, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So to summarize this passage, Paul says this, that we are to follow the right example because there is a higher citizenship than Rome or America that we are just aliens on this earth, and heaven is where we truly belong. So there is a great background to this warning that Paul is given. It is the perversion of what is called Christian liberty. The idea of freedom in Christ, or Christian liberty, is well developed in Scripture. And it should have none other than the meaning that believers in Christ are freed from the penalty of sin by faith in Jesus. And also to describe the freedom that we are to have over the dominion or bondage of sin. So I want to look at some scriptures to to influence our understanding of this. So first turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 on page 1232. So in John chapter 8, we'll read verses 31 through 36. 
Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will you will be made free. I'm sorry, as I'm reading this, I almost just have to stop at the Pharisees who would respond to Jesus saying this, having their ancestors been in captivity to Babylon and Assyria for 200 years. This is unbelievable. I'd not even thought of it. Let me start over again. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Turn next with me to Romans chapter 6 on page 1299. Romans chapter 6, page 1299. In Romans 6, we're going to read a few different verses. We'll start with verse 23. Paul says, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then look back to verse 5 of chapter 6. Paul says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And finally in verse 14. Paul says, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for, if you are, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So again, what I want to communicate is that freedom, that liberty, according to what Jesus has come to do, means freedom from the death of the penalty of sin. The death penalty of sin. And it means freedom from the bondage of sin. But distressingly, many in the first century wanted more. And they wanted different freedom than was intended or offered. So we're going to look at three misunderstandings from Scripture. The first is to mean that the Old Testament law, the Torah, has been made of no effect or influence. So we'll turn back a few pages to Romans chapter 3 on page 1296. Romans chapter 3. We'll read verses 19 through 24. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, 
to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So many misinterpret this passage and Paul's explanation to mean that we are freed from the law and freely justified, as we read in verse 24. But what Paul is actually saying is that the job of the law was and is to expose sin. It's to define sin. It's to allow us to examine ourselves according to the Lord's standard. And the gift of God is to justify and redeem, which is indeed far superior. See, we can't have one without the other. We cannot pick and choose. But many want to pick and choose and say we have been liberated. Christian liberty means the law is of no consequence or influence on our lives anymore. And this is heresy. Another great misunderstanding of this Christian liberty is in Romans 14. So turn over with me to Romans 14, page 1307. Many misunderstand Paul's remarks here in Romans 14 to say that Christians are freed in respect to any activity that is not expressly forbidden in the law. If there's not a law about not watching television, I sure can do it. So we can feel free to do anything so long as it doesn't cause someone to stumble or cause someone to be offended. Let's read in chapter 14, verses 12 through 17. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know that I am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers it to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one whom Christ, for the one whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Instead of the misinterpretation of this, that we are now free to do whatever we want so long as there is not a specific scripture to address things that we experience now 2,000 years after this scripture has been written, I think Paul says just the opposite. That even the things which are not expressly forbidden in scripture should be spiritually considered whether or not they are lawful and beneficial. Especially because the conduct that is acceptable for one person may be offensive and a stumbling block to another. And that in our so-called Christian liberty, even something acceptable or allowed isn't worth grieving or confusing a brother or sister. Instead, that in love we we should selflessly prioritize others above our own interests. All right, we're going to look at one more scripture here. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 on page 1319. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10 on page 1319. In 1 Corinthians 10, we'll certainly not read all, all of the chapter, but Paul spends the first 13 verses citing how those who saw God's miracles in the Old Testament, those who walked through dry land and into security, those who were receiving from the Lord even, succumbed to temptation, went back to idolatry, and followed their own way. He says that, that we should learn from them, that the Corinthians should learn from their examples and um, we should as well. In the next section, you can even see it over verses 14 through 22, probably your, your subheading says something like, free from idolatry. Paul tells them that we and they cannot participate in evil and at the same time have fellowship with the Lord. To follow these things, let's read verse 23. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. This verse is very often used as an out-of-context crutch for Christian liberty to say, well, it may not be good, but as long as it's not unlawful, it's okay. It may not be what the Lord wants, but it's probably not hurting anyone, so I think I'll be okay. That sounds about right, doesn't it? Sounds like a good Facebook post or caption, a personal get-out-of-jail-free card. First, no one who has read this full passage and chapter, which we didn't, but I encourage you to, we, we summarized it. No one who has read this entire chapter could possibly think that this is what Paul means. Second, the verse that follows this clears up and is consistent with what Paul says elsewhere, that we are to consider the needs of others ahead of our own. Let's read verse 24. Paul says, Let no one seek his own, but let each one the other's well-being. Finally, most agree that Paul was actually restating a question here that the Corinthians had had. They had written Paul and talk to Paul about what they thought were their own rights and the knowledge that they had which entitled them to their own opinions and own actions. They actually asked Paul the question, what is the harm to me? His answer is sarcastic to them to say, even if you say, even if you say anything is permissible, is it spiritually best and does it edify others? So to recap, let's think of, of Christian liberty instead among the purposes for which Christ died. Right? Sometimes we kind of pull things out of Scripture off to the side and we think, well, surely we're entitled to think for ourselves, right? I mean, God gave us a brain, right? God gave all of us a brain, so certainly we shouldn't just check it at the door and take these things at face value. I mean, if God didn't want us to think for ourselves, why did he give us a mind and allow us to do it? I mean, why would God give me these desires if God didn't want me to act upon them? Let me put it this way. Christ didn't die, so the law would have no effect. 
bearing no influence on those who would follow him. Christ didn't die so that believers could do whatever they want as long as it wasn't expressly forbidden. Christ didn't die so that now all things are lawful and permissible. Instead, Christ did die so we could choose to be freed from the penalty of sin through faith in Jesus. Christ did die so we could have freedom from the bondage and dominion of sin in our lives. Turn back with me now to Philippians chapter 3 on page 1351. Philippians chapter 3 on page 1351. This is the background that Paul is writing this letter. The background of churches run amok. Churches that had had given themselves this level of spiritual maturity that we've been talking about. This level of wisdom that Paul is working and striving and aiming towards to have such fellowship with the Lord that he can be inspired by the Spirit for the Lord's purpose. Yet many churches had edified themselves and said, this seems right to me and I think I ought to know because I have what I need. So for all Paul's wordiness and complexity of ideas, he wants to make things very simple for us today to give us two distinct distinct examples. So let's read verse 17. He says in verse 17, Brethren, brothers and sisters, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So Paul tells us to follow his example. And take notice of those who spiritually walk in this same way. Now, Paul's not being arrogant or self-centered, as some might think. He says it in a different way in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. And he's not so proud to think that he's the only one who's got it right. He is including some in the Philippian church who might follow the Lord in this same way. And he's referring to his previous remarks that we studied last week about being spiritually mature, about striving for the things and grabbing hold of that which Jesus has for him. So he distinguishes this from what we read in verse 18. Let's read that together. He says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. So we have on the one hand, Paul's example and those who follow this type of example. And we have, on the other hand, those who make Paul weep. The fierce wordsmith, the former district attorney, so to speak, of Jerusalem, is spiritually devastated because they're not just missing the mark. They are leading lives in complete contradiction to what he's taught him and the reasons for which Jesus died. Strongly, he says, these that do this are enemies of the cross of Christ. Not just enemies of Christ, but enemies of the cross, of the reasons and the, and the purpose for which Jesus died. That Jesus was drugged through Jerusalem. That he was beaten and battered and bloodied. And Paul says, these that do this, they're not just missing the mark and sinning. They're spitting on the death and the burial and crucifixion of Jesus. 
to give an idea of what Paul means here, we can think of Matthew 16 where Jesus tells his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. This was a commandment that required self-denial. Paul says that many walk according to this example, but instead of self-denial, they celebrate their religious liberty with self-indulgence. He also says in verse 18, he says, Of whom I have told you often. Of whom I have told you often. I believe that Paul had other conversations with the Philippians. This isn't the first time he's warning them about the mistakes and falsehoods that other churches had embraced. In verse 19, he mentions what he's talking about. He says, whose end is their destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame. Those who set their mind on earthly things. Whose end is their destruction. This word here, destruction, Paul used in Philippians chapter 1. He, he said perdition. He talked about the enemies of those who are following Jesus. And their end will be their perdition. He now puts these people who think they're following Christ in that camp as enemies of God's people. We see things so greatly in our world, right? It's good believers and mediocre believers and and those that are on the outlying circumstances of the church. But Paul did not see it that way. He sees those who are followers embracing God's ways and those who are enemies of God's intended purpose for his church. He says, whose God is their belly. Not just to describe those who really want to eat well, but in a broader sense to indulgence of whatever they want. Whose glory is their shame. This shows the misplaced priorities of the enemies who gloried about things that they should certainly be ashamed of. And who set their mind on earthly things. We're going to unpack this a little more later, but for now we should see this simply as those who focus, whose focus was not on pleasing God, but pleasing themselves. These examples that Paul gives are certainly specific, and they're directed at the Philippians. But when he says, of whom I have told you often, I believe he was referring to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church who is full of self-deception about these things that Paul warns against. Yesterday, I, I read, it seemed like the majority of all of 1 Corinthians and all of 2 Corinthians, and I, I had a litany of scriptures that Deborah would love because it seems like the, the instructions to the Corinthians covers just about everything. These are people who are so confident and so puffed up and f- so full of their self-designed knowledge and power that there was not anything off the table in terms of their Christian liberty. Nothing that was not within the grasp of their flesh because they had arrived, they had decided. So I want to look at a few examples from Corinthians. So turn turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 on page 1311. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, page 
we're going to look at a few things. The first thing I want to point out is that the Corinthians were fed up with Paul. They were fed up with his message of weak character and a crucified Jesus. We've got to think of this in the context of this world of the first century that's really not much different than our own. This pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, this Greek-Roman idea of strength and honor and courage and self-sufficiency. An idea of a man who would allow himself to be crucified is not a great picture. An idea of followers of this same man who would empty themselves of their own strength and their own abilities for what he wants is not a great picture. Let's read in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Paul says this to this church. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then turn over to chapter 2, we'll read verses 1 through 5. Paul says also to this puffed up Corinthian church, and I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but a dem in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Turn over now to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 on the page on page 1336. 2 Corinthians 13. Years later to this same church Paul will say this. He says this in chapter 13, verse 4. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. So what we've just read, this idea of dependency and weakness, Paul says is integral for following Jesus. You see, it's so important we grasp this because we as Americans, we as Westerners, we as a strong nation full of military might and economic power, we have been influenced by this world to think we know better. And as such, we have this tendency to think that we deserve better, that we are owed anything. 
And Paul says we cannot understand the Jesus whom died for us unless we understand his weakness and his crucifixion and that we must conform to it. We are as dependent on God the Father as Jesus the Son was. Turn next to 1 Corinthians 8 on page 1316. 1 Corinthians 8, page 1316. Building on this, the, building on these ideas, the Corinthians were obsessed with knowledge and power, and they actually believed this, that the possession of both knowledge and power meant the possession of spiritual maturity. And that with spiritual maturity, they were liberated from Paul's instructions against participation in cultic and idolatrous meals and pagan temples. I mean, just think about how ludicrous this sounds. We've got knowledge, we've got power, and so then we are really, we're free from all of these laws that we don't like or instructions or commandments, not only from God, but certainly from Paul, from this bleeding heart believer. You can read all of Paul's instructions about this if you've got time this week in 8 and 9 and 10. We'll not do that, but we'll just read the first three verses of chapter 8. Paul says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So Paul answers their questions about meat that had been sacrificed to idols to say that his focus is really the principle of knowledge and love that should guide their understanding. We're being guided by the wrong influence if we think we're entitled to anything or if we think we're entitled to think for ourselves. I don't know about you, but thinking for myself has got me in a world of spiritual hurt. I don't want to think for myself any longer. And that's what Paul's saying. Thinking for ourselves leads to destruction in the church, and it leads to destruction for believers. Turn over next to 1 Corinthians 11, just one page over to page 1319, or I guess a few pages over. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul builds on this a little bit more, this uh, spiritual maturity that the Corinthians thought they possessed also led their wealthy to indulge in these lavish meals to feed their physical appetites during communion or the taking of the Lord's Supper. It was a little different back then for them, but they would gather together to take the Lord's Supper, to share in fellowship together and celebrate the work of the Lord in their lives. And imagine these many bringing in great lavish meals to celebrate the Lord's Supper, just because supper is in the idea of what they're doing. Meanwhile, many among them were poor and starving. Let's read in 1 Corinthians, we'll read first 11 We'll read first chapter 11, verse 17 through 22. Paul says, 
Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. We're going to skip what he says in the next few sections, but he he unpacks this a little bit more sternly. But let's read in verses 33 through 34. Paul says, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come to you. Paul's describing this just ridiculous situation that's almost hard to imagine and even fathom. That worship, that coming together to eat of the Lord's Supper and participate in fellowship with believers as they have fellowship with the Lord has been so adulterated and distorted that there are those that are so self-indulgent that they would bring their lavish meals to gloat and overlook those who were going hungry. More than this, that they were coming drunk and worse things than that. All because they'd say, well, I am entitled to do as I please and use my own mind and do as I wish. The last place we'll look at, turn back to 1 Corinthians 5 on page 1313. 1 Corinthians 5 on page 1313. Probably the, the thing that the Corinthians are known most for or worse for was their sexual sin. Not only was fornication and adultery in the Corinthian church, it was celebrated as a right of spiritual freedom. Imagine this. Adultery and fornication being celebrated because we have arrived We're allowed to do this. We're allowed to even go out to the pagan temples and worship in this way because we have arrived and we're not even hiding it. Now, as soon as we imagine this, we would think, surely not. But what things have we allowed, welcomed, and tolerated in God's holy church because we think we can do what we want? Let's read together verses 1 through 13. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has had his father's wife. And you're puffed up, and you have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, as absent, I, I Excuse me, for I indeed, as absent in the body but present in spirit, have already judged, and though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in this day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, 
since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexual immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since you would need to go out into the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner nor even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? But you, excuse me, do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. We've read a lot, but it is so important to understand our predecessors. Those who have drank the same spiritual drink as us. Those who have been given the same gospel of good news and freedom from bondage and sin and the death penalty. So that we would not follow in their footsteps. That we would not foolishly self-proclaim that we are allowed to do what we want. Or that we are allowed to have nuance for what it means to follow Jesus. Or decide for ourselves what is acceptable or not. Let's turn back to Philippians chapter 3 on page 1331. Philippians chapter 3, page 1331. All these things influences what Paul is writing. All of these things were on Paul's mind and would have been well known by the Philippian church. They didn't misunderstand what he'd say when he said, your God is your belly and your glory is your shame. They would have well known the type of things that he was speaking about. I believe these are the very problems that he has in mind when he says these things, that these, these people have become enemies of the cross of Christ. And in the second part of verse 19, he, he says that they, they set their mind on earthly things. These earthly things are not necessarily just the practical aspects of our lives. Paul's not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about work tomorrow, about being ready for the meetings that we have, or being ready for the day. Instead, he's saying these, these things that are evil, Deborah's been teaching us about evil on Friday nights. Evil being the lack of God's goodness. The absence of God's purpose. He says, these who do these things have allowed in their lives the things that have no purpose of God in them. The things which God does not approve. They had their mindset on these things. So finally, Paul makes an interesting pivot from this. He sets before them the condition of this church and warns them not to follow 
this example. Let's read verses 20 through 21. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. We've got to appreciate what this would mean to the Philippians who greatly valued their Roman citizenship. I think really only second to American citizenship. I'm guessing if there was a poll taken of all the world, what seemed like the greatest citizenship with the greatest rights, America would come in the top, wouldn't it? We enjoy many great things. The greatest nation on earth with the greatest military on earth with the greatest judicial systems, access to health care, great police force, and on and on and on that we enjoy as citizens of this great nation. Paul says far more significant than Roman or American citizenship, we should be focused on heavenly citizenship. If we're citizens of heaven, then we're just resident aliens here. We're passing through for a period of time. Being born in this country, we have been afforded amazing privileges and opportunities. And it's easy to take them for granted, isn't it? We see things on the news and glad that's not me. Sure glad I'm an American because I worked really hard to be born here. And as a result, I've earned all that I am due. Paul wants us to, be re- to recognize that we have been born again for heavenly citizenship with remarkable rights and opportunities that should not be taken for granted, mistaken, or manipulated. We'll wrap this up with a few things the Lord has shown me this week. This Christian liberty, Google it. (laughs) Don't Google it. There's books out there. There's podcasts out there. There's sermons out there about this this made-up mythical idea of Christian liberty. And it is a perversion of reality. At least the way it has come to be understood. We have been given an opportunity to be free from the death penalty and exonerated before the Most High God from spiritual the spiritual death penalty. And God wants to give us authority over sin and its dominion in our lives. If there is any Christian liberty, this alone is the reason Jesus died. Freedom is not free though, is it? This freedom indeed came at a cost. Our ransom has been paid, and if the Son has set us free, we should be free indeed, but not for our own purpose, but his alone. I believe as Americans we have been conditioned as much as these Roman citizen Philippians. We have a byproduct of liberty called entitlement. Our earthly citizenship has been influenced and is influencing our spiritual understanding. 
We think because we have paid taxes and that we deserve roads and schools and libraries that likewise we are due spiritual dividends or worse, that we are above reproach or suspicion and can do what we please because Christ has died once and for all. On the contrary, what do we have that we have been not given And what do we know that we have not been taught? My friends, I pray that we would be spiritually mature. That we would follow Paul's example. That we would abolish among us any spiritual entitlement. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Amen.